old pilots playing tales from four to one. When flying with a new first officer, particularly one who's only recently joined the airline, it's easy to make assumptions about their skills and knowledge, but so often those generalizations prove to be completely wrong. So it was when I met and flew with Phil on a recent trip to the Caribbean. We were talking about my habit of looking for interesting flying tales, and he said he might have one for me. He kept me spellbound whilst he told the story of his flight in an Atlantic Airways Electra Golf Foxtrot India Zulu uniform out of London Stansted Airport on a dark night some ten years ago. It was back in March of 2007 and Phil, a 31-year-old then, had clambered into the right seat of the aged Lockheed L-188 Electra that he was due to fly that night. Phil had started his career flying air taxis, instructing and bush flying, but for the past four years he had been on the Electra. The aircraft was 47 years old and had considerably more age and experience than either the captain or Phil, who was the first officer and the handling pilot for their flight up to Edinburgh in Scotland. Their aircraft had started its career with KLM back in 1960 and had been christened Neptunus, which might have been a reference to the Roman god of water and horses, or perhaps it was named after the Dutch baseball team that plays out of Rotterdam. But whatever, after a few years it was passed on to Universal Airlines, who converted it to a freighter. It happily flew junk around the States for a few years before moving to the UK via a Swedish airline, where it initially joined hunting cargo and then Atlantic Airlines. It was here that it nearly ended its flying career. The Electra had been developed by Lockheed and first flew in 1957. It had a high power-to-weight ratio from its four Allison turboprop engines, huge propellers and short wings, which meant that most of the wing was covered with prop wash. This, combined with its large Fowler flaps, gave it a performance advantage unmatched by many jet transports, particularly on short runways at high elevations. It was the first large turboprop airliner built in the United States, and initial sales were good until two fatal crashes showed a design defect which required expensive modifications and no more were ordered. However, the airframe was subsequently used as the basis for the very successful P-3 Orion maritime patrol aircraft. The machine that Phil was to fly that night had something of a chequered career. It had already been the subject of an Air Accident Investigation Board report some six years earlier. Shortly after getting airborne out of Rennes in France, bound for Bordeaux, when climbing through 4,000 feet, the crew were somewhat alarmed to hear an extremely loud bang, and the aircraft started shaking violently. The aircraft quickly depressurized and, suspecting airframe damage, the captain declared a mayday and returned his shuddering beast back to Rennes for, thankfully, an uneventful ILS to land. 
The investigation showed that a small door, the crew emergency exit door, a mere six feet long, located within the forward cargo door, had decided to part company with its companion, never to be seen again. It appeared to have been closed but not locked, indications of which did not appear in the cockpit. The aircraft was on loan and the crew operating it were unfamiliar with the door design and had failed to notice that it wasn't properly secured. It was approaching midnight when Phil and his captain climbed into their aircraft. They had a jump seat passenger with them, a ground engineer, who was going to do the turnaround when they got to Edinburgh. But despite having come from an earlier generation of aircraft, the Electra was capable of being operated by just two pilots. Zulu uniform was a bit of a one-off amongst the Atlantic fleet of seven Electras, being the only one fitted with Hamilton standard propellers, the same as found on the C-130 Hercules. They ran through their checks and taxied out to runway 05 for the standard Buzzard Sierra departure. The weather wasn't great, with an 11-knot wind from the north, almost all of it across the runway, a few clouds at 100 feet and scattered clouds at 600 feet. The visibility was 5,000 metres, that's about 3 miles. They were only a few thousand pounds below their maximum takeoff weight, but as Phil opened up the throttles of their four powerful Allison turboprops, he wasn't concerned the aircraft had a lot of thrust available. Indeed, in its early life, the powerful engines exceeded the strength of the engine mounts, breaking free and causing the wings to collapse. All the aircraft had been recalled to Lockheed and strengthened at enormous cost to the manufacturer. Orders dried up, which is why only 170 were ever produced. Today, however, everything looked normal, until that was the captain called Rotate. put this into perspective, the most critical and dangerous time for an engine failure is just after the calculated V1 speed, the point at which there is no longer enough runway left to stop the aircraft, so getting airborne is almost always the safest option. The rotate call comes shortly after V1, when flying speed has been reached. It was just after Phil started to rotate his Electra into a climbing attitude and the wheels had left the runway that all hell broke loose. There are only three axes about which an aircraft can move. It can pitch, it can roll, or it can yaw. And without any notice, Zulu Uniform began to do all three in a most violent and erratic manner, accompanied by a deafening, fluctuating, bellowing noise from the propellers. Although the instruments became almost impossible to read, since the aircraft was violently and unpredictably lurching around so much, glancing down the pilots could see that all the engine RPM gauges were randomly spinning up and down by about a thousand RPM, combined with equally confusing variations in the engine horsepower and the other gauges. 
Despite being thrown around in the noise and confusion, Phil kept control of his bucking aircraft and managed to climb away from the ground. As they clambered up towards 2,000 feet, the ground engineer on the jump seat pointed out that both the number 2 and number 4 engines were over 1,000 degrees centigrade, the maximum of takeoff being 971. So the captain gingerly throttled them back until they came within limits, and once through the acceleration altitude, they cleaned the aircraft up. Neither the pilots nor the engineer had ever experienced nor even heard of anything like this before, and whilst Phil did his best to keep the aircraft flying, no mean feat considering how much the machine was throwing itself around, they tried to identify the problem. As they did so, they noticed that the number 2 engine propeller RPM was running down, so, believing it had failed, they shut that engine down. Now they were down to 3. They continued to climb past 3,000 feet, and the captain declared a pan, asking for an immediate return to Stansted for an ILS. Having levelled around 4,500 feet and with a safe 240 knots, they started to run some checks, but with the propeller RPMs continuing to fluctuate wildly, throwing the aircraft around, the captain could hardly read the checklists. He tried to adjust the power levers to control the propeller speed variations, but it had absolutely no effect. Phil, on the other hand, was having to use all his skill to keep the aircraft vaguely on an even keel. His machine was still violently yawing from side to side, rolling and pitching so much that he was only able to stay within around 300 feet of his assigned altitude. As the prop RPMs changed, it seemed that the propellers were varying from full course giving enormous thrust to flat plates creating a huge amount of drag. It was like the aircraft was being simultaneously pulled and pushed forwards and backwards with enormous force, causing it to thrash around the sky. Well, whilst his first officer struggled to position the bucking aircraft downwind, the captain was trying to work the problem. He suspected that it might have something to do with the synchrophase system, which is used in the cruise to automatically match the phase of the propellers, reducing vibration and noise, but this system wasn't even turned on. He was fruitlessly struggling through his quick reference handbook, looking for an appropriate drill to apply to their situation, but there was nothing in there that came close to what he was seeing, and even if there had been, he would have struggled to read it whilst he was being thrown about so much. Then he noticed that the number three propeller had stopped its wild gyrations and appeared to be pitch-locked, at about 14,300 RPM, well above the normal maximum. The pitch lock was an independent mechanism that engaged when the propellers exceeded their maximum RPM to prevent further decreases in the blade pitch angle. Despite the high RPM, they decided to leave the engine running until they were on short finals and then shut it down. Fighting against the high power from the number 3 engine, they managed to get the aircraft slowed to 190 knots by reducing the power on numbers 1 and 4 and getting some flap out. 
Through a gap in the clouds, Phil manoeuvred the aircraft towards finals and they put the gear down. Things were looking a bit better when at seven miles the number three engine appeared to come out of pitch lock and operate normally. With the captain now flying the aircraft, they completed the landing checks and put full flap down. The aircraft slowed to their planned two-engine approach speed of 150 knots. However, just as things were looking under control, as they passed 1,000 feet, both the numbers 1 and 3 engines appeared to flame out. With the number 2 engine already shut down, they were now on one engine. Despite bringing up the power on their last power plant, the number 4, they started to sink into the approach lights. Phil recalled that he wasn't too worried at that point. The approach lights are mounted on frangible posts, so even though they would be short of the runway, they might probably get away with it. In the darkness, however, what he didn't see was the four-lane highway junction that they would have to get over before they reached the more benign undershoot of runway 05. The approach path indicating lights turned red as they dropped lower and lower and with the speed decaying rapidly below 130 knots they tried to milk everything they could out of the dying Electra. As they touched down they left tyre marks right at the beginning of the piano keys, the white stripes marking the start of the runway and they trundled safely down the tarmac. Vacating at a high-speed turn-off, they parked on a taxiway and waited for the fire trucks. After completing their after-landing checklist, they isolated the number one and three engines with the fire handles and shut down the number four engine normally, and for the first time in some 20 minutes, a quiet calm descended on the flight deck. The Air Accident Investigation Board were informed some three days after the incident, but not one to let grass grow under the aircraft, Atlantic had already rectified the fault and returned the aircraft back to service. As such, the cockpit voice recorder had been overwritten by subsequent flights, but with the faulty synchrophaser and the flight data recorder available, the AAIB were able to determine that a burnt-out circuit board had caused the fault by shorting several connections. They pointed out that the pulling of a circuit breaker on the bus A panel would have forced the engines to revert to their basic mode, but then, since the appropriate drill for multiple propeller malfunctions was somehow missing from their checklists, the pilots wouldn't have known that. So Phil and his captain went back to work. Their story went almost unnoticed until the British Airline Pilots Association got to hear of it and realised what an amazing feat of skill the crew had displayed to safely land their aircraft in such adverse conditions near their maximum takeoff weight and on only one working engine. The well-deserving pilots were rightly presented with Balper's Outstanding Airmanship Award. For those Canadian aviation enthusiasts amongst you, this venerable Electra, still with its British registration, 
of Gulf Foxtrot India Zulu uniform can be seen at Abbotsford International Airport near Vancouver. It's parked up and looking a bit sad near the Conair Aviation Outfit. 